You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode seven. Today, we're asking the question, what is the relationship between leadership beliefs and leadership practices? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? The question for today's episode is, what's the relationship between leadership beliefs and leadership practices? Uh, Where this question comes from is that leadership is something that every single theory in safety agrees is important. Whether you're talking about high reliability organizations or safety culture or behavioral safety or the new view, they all say that leadership matters. What does that really mean? And how do we examine that from a research point of view. Often the only way to find out about leadership is either to watch it happening from the outside or to get people to talk about what they believe as leaders. So in this episode, we want to check the relationship between those two things. How much can you know about how someone behaves as a leader from what they believe about leadership and what they believe about safety? So Drew, there's a lot of talk in safety. We have a lot of talk about the relationship between beliefs and behaviours. And it's important across a lot of people in organizations in relation to safety. So what are your thoughts on this connection between what people think or want to do and what people you know, maybe think they actually do in the workplace? I've got really mixed thoughts about it. On the one hand, all of our theories that drive the way we try to manage safety assume that there's this strong link, that if we change the way people think about safety, that will change the way people do safety. But then we're constantly running into these examples that don't seem to match that, where people don't have as much control over their own work. They don't have the discretion to apply their own beliefs. So it doesn't surprise me at all that we might find leaders performing tasks that they really don't believe in. Last year at a safety conference, I was talking about safety logics and safety culture, and I I opened with uh, the following story. And so our listeners can you know play along at home. So I started by saying, you know, who thinks safety culture is about, you know, the collective beliefs of people in the organization and, you know, most people put their hand up and I said, uh, so who thinks that it's those beliefs that drive behaviors and most people had their hands up. And so then I, I, I changed tact and I asked who in this room of safety practitioners believes that lost time injury rates are a good indicator of safety performance and every hand went down. And then I asked, So who here gets involved in the development and the production and the discussion about lost time injury rates within their own organization? And every hand went back up. So this relationship between what people think and know and believe and what they do in the workplace is not as clear as we might think. Yeah, I love that story. And I think there are sort of two explanations behind it. One of them is that even leaders in organizations don't really have much choice about the way they do their job as we'd like to think they do, and perhaps even as much as they think they do. It comes down to it. A lot of what we do at work is just constrained by big things like organisational policies and by little things like the day-to-day demands of the job. And the other part of it is that 
all of us have got aspirations to do better. I know myself, I fall short of the type of supervisor I would like to be. And so if you ask me, you know, what is a good supervisor versus what do I spend my time on? Those two things don't line up. And I'm not happy about it, but if I'm honest, that's just the way it is. My vision of how things could be doesn't match my visions of what I'm capable of. So the paper that we've chosen to talk about today is titled Site Managers and Safety Leadership in the Offshore Oil and Gas Industry. The study was done by Angela O'Day and Rona Flynn from the Department of Psychology at the University of Aberdeen. The research paper was published in the Journal of Safety Science in 2001. So that means that the research was probably done across 1999 and 2000. And it looks like the study that we're talking about today was part of a whole number of publications regarding safety leadership, safety behaviour and safety climate in the oil and gas industry in the North Sea. And I suppose when we think about the time and, and when we think about the scale of this survey that we'll talk about soon, people will recall that Piper Alpha, the disaster in the North Sea, happened in 1988. So that obviously sparked a, a whole opportunity for a whole lot of research to happen across the whole industry. And you don't always get those opportunities. Drew, this is a survey-based study. This is the first time that we've, we've talked about a survey-based study on the podcast. And most of our listeners would be very familiar with, with surveys in the workplace. But before we step into exactly what was done in this study, do you want to give us your thoughts on survey research more broadly? Sure. The, the honest answer for why researchers use surveys is that surveys are cheap. Doing ethnographic research takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of access. It takes a lot of permissions. It takes a lot of ethics approval. With a survey, we can access a lot of people at once. We can put it online. We don't even need to hunt them down individually. We just advertise the link and we get the responses. The advantage of that, uh, from a genuine quality point of view, is that there is quality in numbers. That when we access a wide range of people, we can be more confident that we're not just getting individual opinions, that we're finding trends and patterns that are true for a broader community of people. And that broader community is often ones that we don't access through the interviews. They're people who wouldn't have time to sit down, who can't give us access to their own organisation but can give us access to their mind through a survey. The big challenge with surveys, and this is really the reason why we're using a 2001 study, is that matching the research question to the survey is particularly difficult. Um, and so we have to have a question that can in fact be answered through a survey. There are lots of things that we can't. Uh, we can't understand people's behavior through a survey. We can't understand what people are truly thinking through a survey. All we can do is understand what people are willing to tell a researcher in response to a particular question. And that makes the design of the questions and the way in which we analyse them really important in ways that a lot of researchers don't fully appreciate. They tend to put out surveys that are seeking to collect factual information. And surveys are just surprisingly bad at collecting facts. Um, but if you design them well, they're really good at understanding beliefs. Yeah, I recently reviewed a paper about influence and they were asking a group of people the effectiveness of their influencing tactics. And, you know, that's one of those questions that you actually need data from the people being influenced, not just the people trying to influence to know whether it's effective or not. You know, that's one of those examples where certain questions you can answer with a survey like beliefs, Drew, and certain things about, you know, how something works in the world, you're not going to get the data that you want out of a survey. Let's move on to talk about this particular paper. David, do you want to take us through the details of who was surveyed and you know, why they asked those particular questions? 
Yeah, so I like this paper because it was such a large sample across a you know almost a whole industry in a geographic region, and you know we don't we don't see too much of this scale of research uh, these days. So they had two hundred individual participants so who were offshore installation managers. So that's the name in the oil and gas industry for a site manager who manages an offshore production facility or drilling rig. So these two hundred offshore installation managers worked across one hundred and fifty seven different uh, installations and 36 different organisations. So the operations were on the UK continental shelf on the North Sea, so the Scotland side of the North Sea. So it was a good large study. You know, that's if we think about the, the effort it would try to take now to get 36 organisations to, at the same time, want to do the same research project, you know, you know, maybe near on impossible. But like we said, there was a lot of motivation in the industry and, and, the, and the region at the time to actually figure out what was going on in safety. And the thing to look at when you're looking at a survey paper is not just the raw numbers of people that are reported back, but who, what sample those people are selected from. So 300 responses of construction workers in Australia would be meaningless. It's a large number, but compared to the total number of construction workers, it's minuscule. And you need to know whether those are selected from one or two particular companies or one or two particular sites or one or two particular types of construction. In this case, we have a good idea of how many people there are at this level within the oil industry. And so when we get a large sample of uh, reasonably senior people, we've got a quite confidence that we have in fact covered the full range of people and opinions. There's, it's unlikely to just be closely selected from one or two companies or one or two installations. Yeah, exactly, Drew. And I think if I recall, I don't recall the exact numbers in the paper, but um, I think there was about 350 or 360 people in the total population. So this sample is is sort of 60 odd percent of, of the total sample of people in that population. So Drew, do you want to tell us a little bit about their hypothesis? Because being a psychology study, one of the good things about psychology studies is um, is the discipline around setting research aims and setting research hypotheses and then setting out to test them a bit, a bit like what we might see in applied science, um, but maybe we see a little bit less of in safety. So do you want to talk about what they were trying to do? Yeah, sure. So, so you say it's a good habit. I personally find it a bit of an irritating habit, this need to reduce every research question to a hypothesis. Um, as a general guide, when you're looking at something which is qualitative, you have a question like you know, how or why. When you're trying to produce a quantitative model, you have a hypothesis that says, you know, is this particular claim or suggestion true or false? In this case, they've turned all of their questions into hypotheses, and for some of them that matches, for some of them it doesn't really. So let's look at the overall aim. They're trying to investigate three variables. The first one is the level of experience that someone has. The second is their style of leadership. This is self-reported, so it's really their, like what they think they are as a leader. And the third one is their attitudes to safety and some of the revealed behavior, and we'll get into exactly how they measure behavior in a survey a bit later on. But they wanna see the relationship of these things. So as you get more senior, does that change how you lead and does that change how you behave. And then their second aim was just to understand what managers thought good leadership and good safety looked like. And so they then turned this into a sort of set of hypotheses that they're then going to test. And the idea is that their evidence will either say yes or no to each of these five hypotheses. So let's talk about these hypotheses. So, and, and, you know, the questions that they were trying to answer is yes or no, were, were largely informed by their literature review of previous studies, you know, and, and pretty much previous studies that were done in relevant industries within the 10 years prior to the study. 
So their first hypothesis that they believed was that more experienced managers will have a more participative leadership style, i.e., you know, a participative style will be one where the leader is more willing to engage the workers in decision making and is more, you know, and the example of more having an open door policy for communication and involvement of the workers. The second hypothesis was that more experienced managers and those with that type of participative leadership style are more likely to attribute the cause of accidents to job-related factors rather than putting the cause of accidents on the person or the worker who had the incident. Now, that was that was informed by, you know, more experienced managers would think more broadly about accidents and a more participative style of leader would have more open and understanding relationships with the workers and would seek to find other reasons for why things went wrong. The third hypothesis was that more experienced managers and those with a participative style would be more positive about their own ability to develop and maintain a positive safety climate. So those that have been managers for longer and those that had a more open style that we would normally associate associate with a more mature um, or a more positive safety climate would rate their ability to, to create that environment higher than those who are less experienced and those less participative in their leadership style. The fourth hypothesis was that managers will identify behaviours consistent with a participative leadership style as best practice in safety leadership. So when asked about what does good look like, they will talk about those things that are consistent with a participative and, and open style of leadership. And the fifth hypothesis was that managers' perceptions of the outstanding safety issues that are still trying to be addressed by the in- industry are likely to relate to human behaviour and worker motivation rather than technical and procedural issues. And they formed this hypothesis based on all the work that had happened over the previous 10 years from regulators and, and companies in the oil and gas industry in the North Sea that had taken a lot of effort to resolve technical and procedural and compliance requirements. So they, they'd formed this hypothesis that the site managers were going to be conditioned to respond that the remaining outstanding issues to be resolved were now the worker motivation and worker behaviours. So, so each of these five hypotheses, based on existing research or what they were witnessing in the industry at the time, and then they went out to go about, to go about testing them. So I might jump in here and say a little bit about how we then design a questionnaire. There are two broad approaches we can have. One of them is very literal, which is we directly ask the research participants the questions that we want answers to. And we're relying there on the fact that they will understand the question in exactly the same way that we are trying to answer it and that they will be honest and direct and we can take their answers at face value. Now, unfortunately, we know from lots and lots of experience with surveys that those two things are almost never true. And it's really hard to check, has someone understood this survey the way you have? I'm sure we've all had that experience when we're answering one of these questions. You do agree with the following statement on a scale of one to five. And we'd really want an option six, seven, and eight. Option six is, I don't understand what you're getting at. Option seven is, I do understand, but I think you've got a loaded agenda here and I actually want to send you the opposite signal. And option eight is... I'm somewhere in the middle, but not because I'm in the middle, but because I disagree with the premise of the question. And so that that sort of approach can be very dangerous. Then the other way we can do it is we can ask people questions that through their answers, they don't tell us the answer to our questions, but they reveal the answers to our questions. And that's what a lot of the more subtle psychology instruments are designed to do. And that's always why, you know, get a psychologist involved if you want to ask a psychology survey, because they really understand how to do this stuff well. Don't try to just invent it from first principles. 
Yeah, and another thing that happens, you know, in in this type of research is people just go out and try to find instruments or or sets of questions that are, you know, near enough to what they're trying to understand. And uh, and what I liked about this paper is actually put a lot of effort into designing a questionnaire that was that was tailored and tested um, to be specific to the questions and and the participants in this particular study. So. Drew, do you want to talk about how they did that questionnaire design process? Sure. So I'll just take you through as a basic set of steps. The first thing they wanted to do was understand what their participants' experience already was with questionnaires. Now, that may seem a bit surprising given you know, everyone nowadays is used to having to do these questionnaires, but it's still an important step to understand what other surveys have gone on in an organisation. You know, people have just been asked to do three separate safety climate surveys over the past three years. Giving them another survey that looks like a safety climate survey, they're going to interpret it based on the experience of the questionnaires they've already done. So you need to understand sort of what sort of questions are they used to answering and how do they tend to answer them. Next thing is design the questionnaire based on the literature. So this is using the literature to find existing questions and what those questions mean, and also using the literature to link concepts and questions together. They then Give this a review by two senior safety executives. That's partly just a research conduct thing to make sure that the organisations have approved of it. But it also checks to make sure that the language that's being used is appropriate for the industry. Different terms mean different things to different people. And if an industry is used to using one term for something, then giving them a totally different term is just going to be confusing. If I put out a survey that says, you do you do take fives? When in this particular industry, it's not called a take five, it's called a pre-start risk assessment or a mini moment, then they'll say, you saying no to the fact they do take five is going to be meaningless. You need to know what language they use. They then sent out a test survey. So they sent the questionnaire out to 10 site managers and they didn't just get the responses back, they sat them down and gave them an interview to talk about the questionnaire to check how they'd understood each question, why they'd given the answers they did to make sure that people were responding in the way that the survey designers intended. And then that resulted in a final draft of the survey, which was again approved by the senior safety executives. So all of these steps are sort of quality control even before the survey goes out. It's too late once you've got 500 responses to realise that one of your questions didn't work. Yeah, and, and we shouldn't underestimate the effort that goes into designing a questionnaire. But, you know, if you really want data that's aligned to the questions that you're asking, then you need to invest that time up front to get the questionnaire right. Yeah, David, you and I know that I've, I've got my own safety belief questionnaire that I've been working on. It's currently sitting at, I believe, version 34, and it still doesn't work um, despite your extensive testing. And that's the challenge is you just because you've got an idea, just because you think you've got some good questions, doesn't mean that respondents are going to respond in the way that you thought or in a way that is useful for getting the data you're trying to get out of the survey. Yeah, so so let's talk about the exact questions that they asked because yeah, I think I think there's some use in in knowing these questions and you know even without the findings, our, our listeners might be able to take some of these questions as ideas for how they might get data in their own organisations. So they did use a an, an existing questionnaire for leadership style. They they one of the good things in the paper is they actually listed all of the questionnaires they considered and why they dismissed certain questionnaires in relation to leadership style. And they went back to I think a 1958 leadership style questionnaire because it was short and because it was clear and because it was directly onto the their their question around directive versus participative um, or mainly directive versus mainly participative styles of leadership so they did that they did that questionnaire for the first hypothesis and then they they found a, another study that had been done which had identified the top 10 causes of incidents and they just asked the participants to list the top six out of that top 10 
causes of incidents, which, which enabled a pretty simple um, analysis process to happen. They then asked leaders on a scale of one to seven how easy or difficult they felt it was to create certain aspects of a positive safety climate. So, for example, one of the items was, you know, how easy or difficult is it to get people to openly report near misses? So one is very diff- very easy, seven is very difficult, and you pick a point in between. So this is trying to understand uh, the leader's belief of the ease or difficulty for them to create a positive safety climate. And then obviously matching the hypothesis back to experience and, and leadership style. They then asked three open questions. And these three questions I, I really like. The first is, what is the most effective thing you have done to improve safety climate on your site? The second, what is the best way a leader can demonstrate commitment to safety? And thirdly, what is one piece of advice you would give a new site manager to impact safety on site? Andrew, before I go on to to the last bit of the questionnaire, what do you think about these three questions 20 years later? I love these questions. I, I think there's a real tendency when we're designing surveys to create questions that are easy and boring for people to answer. So we put these, you know, scale of one to five Laggett scales, because people know how to answer them, they can do them quickly, we get a high completion rate, but no one ever has to stop and think. And they don't reveal much, they're just working within categories that we have provided people. These open questions are really cleverly designed to reveal the way people are thinking. We don't actually want to know what's the most effective thing people have done. What we want to know is that by their choice of what they think is most effective, they're revealing the way they think about safety. When they talk about what advice they give a new site manager, they're revealing something about the way they think. And we don't know exactly what they were, they may be thinking, imagining a particular new site manager. It may be something about their own values, but at least they're generating something that is not there built into the survey design. It's something brand new that we can then look at and interpret. And so as long as people are willing to fill out these sort of open questions, there's a lot of interesting stuff that can come out of them. Far better than often people think, well, open questions just means at the end of my one to five scales, I'll ask a question, is there anything else you'd like to tell me? These are very focused open questions that reveal a lot. Yeah, and they continued that for the final question, Drew. The The final question was just asking the site managers to list the five main outstanding issues which still need to be tackled in their site and industry. So those last four open questions, I think solicited a total of something like 670 free text responses. So you say, Drew, that the um, you know questionnaires with, with categories and tick boxes and scales are easy to complete. They're also a hell of a lot easier to analyze than sitting there going through 670 individual free text fields and trying to do a thematic analysis of it. So you know, credit to the researchers for, for realizing the necessity of needing to get the uh, the open answers. Yeah, is easy to analyze is code for doesn't give you particularly interesting answers either. If you want to understand safety climate, you don't ask people a bunch of questions that you already know what the two options are. That can t- that can help you measure safety climate if you already fully understand it, but it tells you nothing new. You only find out something new when you ask someone a question that you don't know the answer to. And that means not giving people a choice between two options, but giving them freedom to respond. Exactly right. And then I think once you get all of the answers or all of the questions, sorry, that you think you want to collect your data, this paper particularly goes, am I going to get people to do this? Is it going to be too onerous? So I like the fact that this this total questionnaire only contained 26 questions across, you know, trying to test five hypotheses. That's relatively short. I know that, you know, I will 
I can think of at least two times in the last uh, couple of months where I've gone, yeah, okay, I'll do this survey and got to about page three or page four and realized I was only partway through and went, ah, this is getting too long. I'm going to dive out of this now. Yeah, I've abandoned lots of surveys myself. And I know the temptation on the other side. You're thinking, I'm doing all this work to put out a survey. I may get 300 sponsors. Oh, gosh, if I just sneak in this little extra question, I can add, you know, I might have got a whole new research paper out of this one extra question. And then how about this one other question? Oh, and my PhD student is doing a research project as well, and wouldn't it really help them to get the answer to this question as well? And before you know it, you've doubled the size of the survey and got a quarter of the number of people actually responding properly to the survey. It takes real discipline to say, you know, I'd love to ask more questions, but I'm going to keep it simple and get the answers. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So, so that was the methodology. So, so I, I, I suppose a custom-designed questionnaire to match the hypotheses that the researchers were trying to trying to understand, and then a total of sort of 26 questions, including both scale-based questions and and open pretext uh, questions. Let's talk about the findings. And Drew, I might I might just uh, lead off here and just dive in when you when you want to comment in relation to the findings. And we'll talk about the findings in relation to the five hypotheses. So the first uh, finding was that experience is not the dominant factor in determining leadership style or attitude to safety. So this idea or the hypothesis that was that more experienced leaders would have a more open leadership style was, I suppose, in that true false way, Drew, based on the data, um, determined to be false, that there was no statistical relationship between years of experience and leadership style. Yeah, I like that one because... Researchers tend to ask questions in the direction in which they expect it. And these researchers clearly went in, and in fact, their literature review gives the reasons why they were sure that as people got older, they would have a more participative leadership style. And so I like the fact that the very first one is just, oh, we thought this was true, but uh, no. And here we go, hypothesis two, not true as well. So second hypothesis was that a more experienced leader and a leader with a more participative style will attribute safety issues less to person-related factors. So, you know, like I said, when I explained the hypothesis, if you're more open and you've got closer relationships and more information coming out of your people and you've got more experience and you've seen more things and you've, you've heard about more or witnessed more complex issues, then you're not going to straight away go, okay, the incident was the worker's fault. But, you know, not true. The three most common causes of, uh, of accidents that were identified by site managers were, number one, the worker not thinking through the job. Number two, worker carelessness and number three worker failing to follow the rules and no difference between more and less experienced uh, leaders or participative or directive leadership styles. Yeah so that one surprised the researchers but doesn't surprise me at all. I, I don't think there is any particular reason to believe that people's attribution of accidents changes with experience and leadership style. It tends to change with what people feel they have control over or with their ability to separate themselves out from the causes of accidents. People would love to believe that an accident will never happen to them. And one of the easiest ways to believe that is to believe that it happens through carelessness or failure to follow rules or for being dumb, because then they can say, well, I'm not any of these things, so I'm safe. That's a pattern we see over and over again. And yet, I don't find it particularly surprising or interesting that it cropped up again here. But it wasn't what the researchers were expecting. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a little bit surprised because I, I just reflect on my own personal experience throughout my career. And, you know, as you get more experienced and as you read more things and see more things and you evolve the way that you think the world works. And, and so, you know, I've definitely done that myself. But I think maybe 
maybe the offshore installation managers maybe don't have access to the sort of the learning opportunities that I've had to try to. I, so I don't know whether my my uh, change in ideas has been because of my experience or things that I've read and learned. Um, and those are two different things. So you, you've become older and wiser, David. It's not necessarily a correlation between the two. Uh, some of us get more reactionary and set in our ways as we get older. Oh, I'm not sure, Drew. That's a bit too much of a compliment, maybe, maybe. But someone did say to me, you can have 10 years of experience or you can have one year of experience 10 times. Yeah. So hypothesis number three. So the finding here was that there was not a strong relationship between experience and leadership style and perceptions of the difficulty in creating a safety climate. So this idea that the more experienced someone is in a leadership role and the more participative their leadership style, then they're going to report that they find it easier to, to create a positive safety climate. And I think this is, I mean, while that makes kind of like rational sense, the opposite was found to be true. It was actually found that less experienced leaders and those with a directive style actually claimed that creating a positive safety climate was much easier. And the researchers concluded that they had, because of the way that the sample was cut, that they that these inexperienced or less experienced leaders and, and more directive style of leaders were overestimating their ability to influence and motivate the workforce. So I, I had an immediate reflection here about the politics of, of safety. So what you've got here is a situation where the more experienced leaders and the ones with an open style of leadership that you would more, I suppose, align with a, with a positive safety climate were then saying that they were finding the task of leadership harder. And I think if, if you started getting that data within your own organization, it would really it would really strain the way that you think about the performance of people in their role. And this is one where we need to be really careful about the limits of people self-reporting their own behaviour and their own success. We could take this at face value and say, well, everyone who is very directive in their leadership is confident that it works. Everyone who is very participative is much more uncertain. So let's listen to the people who are more confident. Or we could do what the researchers did and interpret it backwards and say, well, yeah, they're all saying that it works, but that just means that they're overconfident. And I don't think the data really gives us a path to know which of these cases it is. You know, we don't know whether these less experienced leaders are more successful or whether they're overconfident. A survey can't tell us the answer to that. All it can do is tell us that they think that they are more successful, whereas the more experienced and more participative ones think that it is harder. Yeah, and I think one of the conclusions here was that everyone, I mean, no one said it was easy and, and, and all leaders said that they found it difficult. And maybe it's just a case of the less experienced and directive leaders were you know, unconsciously incompetent and maybe the uh, experienced and participative leaders were more consciously incompetent. And that is kind of reflected in, uh, in their ratings. But, but, but all leaders said, all leaders um, reported that they found it very difficult to create a positive safety climate. Number four, finding number four was, although managers are aware of best practice leadership, they do not always act in a way consistent with this. So remember those three open questions where the researchers asked, you know, what's the one thing that you've done to improve safety climate and what's the, what's the advice that you give to a new leader and, and what's really important? They identified, I suppose, the thematic analysis of those results identified sort of four key areas. One was visibility. So we talk about visible leadership all the time. Second was relationships. So supervisor, worker, relationships and and fostering worker-worker relationships. Uh, the third was workforce involvement, engaging um, in an involvement in conversation, decision-making, ownership of safety practices. And the fourth was proactive management. So getting on top of issues uh, before they become problems. 
So four sort of practices and, and factors that we would, I suppose, now gloss over and say, yeah, that's all part of it. But these leaders had, uh, had all consistently identified these four themes as priorities for best practice safety leadership. But then they reported that this wasn't the way that they led um, in their own roles. Yeah, so that's where the sneaky questions come in when we ask them, you know, what's the piece of advice that you give to a new site manager? Having said that, you know, good practice safety leadership is visibility. Their number one piece of advice is not be visible when, you know, what are the main causes of accidents? It's not failure to get out and build relationships. It's people stuffing up. So this is where people's uh, espoused behaviour, what they say that they believe, and their revealed behaviour, what they say are the top issues or what advice would they give, come into conflict. It's a clever way of getting two separate things measured by the same survey. Yeah, I think this this hypothesis um, and the findings here just reveal that, that the title of this podcast, really, that there is a gap and there is an unclear relationship between leadership beliefs or, or leaders' beliefs about um, safety and then leaders' practices in relation to in leadership practices in relation to safety. The fifth finding area um, was about what are the, I suppose, open issues or, or areas for improvement within safety within your installation and the industry. And there was four themes that they extracted that was uh, was reported openly by more than 30, 30% of respondents. So one in three made a comment in relation to one of these four themes. The first is that, you know, a lot of work, the, the number one area was that 44 of respondents said that they need to get workers more involved in safety activities. They need to get workers to have more awareness of safety and take more ownership of their own safety. And clearly, if we can think about what these leaders reported as the cause of accidents, then clearly we can see how most of them would say, or, or at least half of them would say, that we need our workers to take more, more ownership of, of their own safety. The second was in relation to just a general workforce competency, better skilled people uh, on um, working in the industry. I'm going to skip over the third and go to the fourth because I want to talk a bit more about the third in a minute. So then the one with 31% of respondents was the need for a standardization of safety culture and, and this was actually more about behavioural safety. And, and if we think at the time what was happening throughout the 90s, this was specifically leaders saying they needed their people to make safety a habit, not a compliance issue. But the, the one that I think we might talk about a little bit, Drew, was this, um, this need for what the researchers themed harmonisation of procedures across the industry. But what was underneath that, what this was really about was site managers requesting or pleading for a simplification and a getting back to basics in safety. They were saying that they'd been overwhelmed in the last 10 years, and I suppose since Piper Alpha, overwhelmed with initiatives and legal requirements and procedures. And they were sort of throwing their hands up and saying, look, it's all too much. We need to simplify safety. We don't need to keep issuing new procedures. We don't need to keep doing new initiatives. And this was probably one of the first uh, rock back on the chair moments, Drew, since we've been doing the podcast where I thought, wow, gee, you know, it was only a year or two ago that we wrote the paper on safety clutter and sort of theorized around safety clutter as a new phenomenon. Phenomenon, And here's, uh, here's 200 site managers 20 years ago telling us that it's already a problem. And I think we can certainly see in this paper the roots of a lot of the modern problems in safety because it wasn't that the managers 20 years ago were experiencing modern day levels of demands from safety management systems and procedures. It was that things were already overwhelming then. And what we've done ever since is to make it worse. And I think we really need to link that with the other conclusion of this paper, this gap between how leaders think leadership should be happening 
and how they're finding themselves able to lead. Because one of the big constraints that they have is the safety initiatives, the systems they're required to manage, the compliance they're required to manage. And those things are at odds with their espoused values of leading through visibility, because they're in the office doing paperwork, through relationships, because they're required to enforce compliance. And so once we try to fix problems with safety by putting in systems and procedures, that it's it's not a case of being able to just easily build back in good leadership. Those are the things that were keeping these leaders from do, leading the way they would like to lead. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Drew. So before we talk about the practical implications, Drew, I thought it'd just be worth uh, providing the conclusions that the authors uh, raised at the end of their paper. So do you want to do you want to just talk through those those conclusions that the the authors, I suppose, provided? Sure. So, so here are four bullet points basically in the author's own words. The first one is this classical more research required statement that more research is required to understand the relationship between site managers and safety climate. That one's interesting. It's only very recently that we've seen a big sort of upswell in this link between frontline leadership and safety culture. And the focus for a long time has been on senior leadership. And the second one is the idea that managers are already keenly aware that they have a big role to play in safety climate and that they already know that the best way to achieve it is through participative leadership styles. So this isn't a gap in beliefs or understanding. The gap is that translating that knowledge into practice was really, really difficult for them. And then the final one was this one that we've already mentioned, that less experienced and more directed managers tend to overestimate their own ability to promote a positive safety climate. And David, do you want to take away the sort of final sentence of the paper? Yeah, it's always good to see how it's always an effort when you're writing um, research papers to to get a title right, to get the abstract right, to get the opening sentence and the last sentence of the paper right. And kind of you spend probably half your time on those four elements and then half your time on kind of like the rest of the paper. And so the final the final sentence of the paper concludes that there is still some way to go in developing the right environment for optimum safety performance. Um, I think, Drew, you kind of said before we jumped on the podcast that you could almost write that on the end of every single safety science paper that's been published in the last 20 years. Indeed. So let's move on then to how do we develop the right environment for optimum safety performance? What are our practical takeaways? Yeah, so let's go with some practical takeaways. You know, and, and some of these we haven't talked about yet, but um, they were sort of underneath the, the data. So the, the first practical takeaway I had was that, is there a real difference between owners and contractors' beliefs and practices for safety? And I suppose it's a bit bit unfair to just talk about in the practical takeaways because we haven't talked about it through the through the questions or findings. But for those familiar with the oil and gas industry, of the uh, 157 installations, there was a mix of um, production platforms and uh, drill rigs. And so the way the industry works is that the production platforms are generally operated by the asset owner or the client, and then the drilling rigs are operated by contractors. And this was reported as a surprising sub-finding of the paper where there was no discernible difference in any of the questions um, in relation to sort of drilling safety managers working for contractors or uh, production installation managers working for clients. So, you know, the practical takeaway here is that, you know, for me reading the paper anyway, was that there's this generally accepted and communicated view that we have amongst client organisations that the client organisation isn't the problem, the contractor is. And more specifically for those listeners who are in an oil and gas company, you might also regularly hear the uh, view that uh, operations or production aren't the problem, the drilling team are. And then on both accounts, I think this study, at least for me anyway, said, you know, step back and ask, you know, why does your organisation or your industry think that? 
you know, and don't answer because of injury rates because, you know, we know by now in episode seven that injury rates aren't the greatest way to judge safety. But, you know, step back and ask whether or not you are, you're perpetuating something that, you know, you don't really have good factual answers for. So the second takeaway is that in this study, the non-technical issues were seen as the priority for improving safety in workers, in particular leadership, communication and employee motivation. Now, that could easily sound like this is something that's just, we've grown on about the importance of non-technical issues. But yeah, remember that this is a study of what leaders believe. So the interesting finding here is that people already care deeply about these things. They want to be better leaders. They want to have better communication. They want to be motivating their employees. It's not the belief. It's not that they need persuading. It's not that they need telling the leaders, be communicators, be participative. It's that they're finding it hard to do that given the design of their jobs and the day-to-day situations they're experiencing. And so rather than telling people to do this better, working out what we need to do to change and enable them to be able to do what they already want to do is important. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, Drew, and it's sort of a bit related to number three. And the number three practical takeaway was in this study, 57% of the leaders preferred a directive style of management, even though all of the respondents unanimously reported that best practice safety leadership is uh, is a more participative style. And there was no clear link between experience or, or other factors in relation to leadership style. So, you know, if we if we think in our organisations that we want more participative styles of leaders, then perhaps you know the only way to do that is to find someone who prefers to operate with a participative style of leadership. Um, this this study kind of shows that even if if people know and and believe that it's the right way to lead, it may not be the way that they either do or prefer to lead. So, you know, some takeaways here for your your recruitment and your appointment of. Uh, of leaders with the leadership style that you want. And hey, if you are in an organization that you want to have a more directive style of leadership, then the same is true of the reverse. I mean, I think that applies not just for recruitment, but also for internal selection and promotion, in that we tend to select people based sometimes on their own job effectiveness or on the effectiveness of their, their immediate team. And that short-term effectiveness can come from just being a very solo type person or a very task driven type person and not having the participative leadership. If we want our leaders in the organization to be participative, we need to notice that. We need to encourage it. We need to reward that. And we need to elevate those sorts of people. Yeah, you're right, Drew. So, so the fourth one was, um, you know, first, fourth practical takeaway was for our listeners to, is, is what do you and the people in your organization believe causes accidents? What are the accident causation logics that are shared in your organization? Because this study, I suppose, of, of, of all of these 200 managers at the time in this industry, in this part of the world, unanimously aligned and agreed that the causes of accidents were workers not thinking through the job, worker carelessness and worker non-compliance. And if those are the logics that, that are shared and held in relation to accident causation, then that's where the supervisor effort, that's where the organisational effort is going to go to try to improve safety performance. Now, we know that this has got a one, you know, a set of information from one group of people, and I'm sure if we surveyed all of the workers on all of those installations that they may not have come up with those same three things but it's worth all of our listeners taking some steps to understand what are the shared accident causation logics at play in your organization uh, you know and uh, and and what's your role in in reinforcing or reshaping those logics and then the uh, final takeaway is how much are we really helping enabling and equipping leaders with this with the skill set that they need to create a positive safety climate 
And I think a big part of that that comes out of this study is just how realistic are we about what we're expecting? You, in this study, it wasn't that people were saying they didn't believe in safety climate or they didn't think they had a role to play. It's that they said that it's very difficult to develop and maintain that climate. And the more experienced people had, the more they had a participative style, which might be said that you know, the more they were trying to do it, the harder they said it was. Yeah, I think, you know, we've researchers in safety and practitioners in safety over the last 20, 30 years, we're flat out agreeing what uh, safety climate and safety culture are, yet we have fairly straightforward expectations that our, our frontline leaders and our, our, our middle and senior managers are just able to create this. And, and that's a good reflection for me in, in this paper is, you know, how much effort do we put into, into actually helping align and enable and um, support leaders to be able to create that? You can't really blame a leader for not creating a positive safety climate. What you can do is is help a leader with a set of capabilities and a set of activities that you hope will get there and then, you know, judge them and their ability to do that and lead like that. Yeah. And so the final takeaway is just really about the nature of this questionnaire. Um, I think we can take away some, the, the interesting data we got by asking some cleverly designed open questions as opposed to administering a generic safety culture or safety climate questionnaire. They got some good feedback about what was considered to be good practice, as well as some good information about your current safety gaps across the group. So, you know, irrespective of its usefulness for research, just imagine how useful those 670 individual comments would have been as something that you could feed back to the safety team. And so, you know, this is what people are thinking, this is what people are experiencing, this is what people need help in fixing. Yeah, I like that, Drew. I think we've suggested to our listeners that, uh, you know, ethnographic approaches are, are really useful for collecting data. But the reality for a number of our listeners that are working across, you know, multiple operations, multiple countries means that they can't always immerse themselves everywhere in every operation to do, you know, ethnographic style of data collection. But, you know, the alternative is, is having a short set of three to five open questions and, uh, and, you know, they can get information from, you know, across their organisation that can use to inform you know, how they direct organisational effort to, uh, to support people who are, you know, at the front line, you know, managing at the point of risk. So I, I really like that as a sort of a supplementary um, professional practice approach. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 